Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and we are going to be having a very interesting conversation today. I'm interviewing Ari Whiten, and he has a website called theenergyblueprint.com. And he's going to be calling into question the existence of adrenal fatigue. This is something that I had uh, just vaguely thought about uh, in the past. Um, He's going to be talking about, you know, how cortisol levels don't necessarily indicate the existence of uh, stress or chronic fatigue or adrenal fatigue. And that in the research that he's delved into, that you know, it just isn't there. There just isn't any research that proves the existence of adrenal fatigue. But there is a lot of research on chronic fatigue. And he talks about how these symptoms of adrenal fatigue and chronic fatigue overlap. And that really and truly, uh, the problem that we should be calling into question is the functioning of the mitochondria. So that's what we're we'll talking about today. This is a fascinating conversation. This is one of the best podcasts I've done in a while. I really, really enjoyed our interview today because I love people that, like myself, question the status quo and question is that really scientifically valid? Does that really exist? Uh, what is actually happening here and how do we help people to the best of our ability? And that's why I like this podcast. We talk about how to improve energy levels, how to, uh, you know, improve the functioning of mitochondria, increase the number of mitochondria. And we talk about Ari Whiten's amazing program, the Energy Blueprint on the show today. But before we do that, we have to do the disclaimer. Please keep in mind this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in anything that we suggest today on the show. And I have my book out on Amazon is also about energy and fatigue and mitochondrial function. And my book's called Limitless Energy. You can get it on Amazon. The Kindle version is out right now. The paperback should be out very, very soon. And I wanted to write this book because my number one client's complaint is fatigue. My number one complaint when I was having health issues was was fatigue. And I still, you know, struggle with that sometimes as well if I'm working too much or, you know, expend too much of my energy. And I've always really wanted to research Uh, why are people so tired? And so I wanted to put this book together and talk about the mitochondrial poisons uh, that are toxic metals. So there's toxic metals like arsenic, aluminum, tin, thallium, cesium, many of these you haven't heard before that I've researched and written extensively out in the book in totally uh, layman's terms so anybody can understand it. And I wanted to bring some awareness to Uh, you know, these metals that could be making you tired that we know are are making you tired, how to remove these metals, the type of testing you want to do to discover what metals you have, the type of supplements you need to take to remove these metals specifically, and some very simple tips, things that you can do at home without working with a practitioner, though I I recommend doing that if you really want to get serious about things. But go check out my book just as a starting point. It's called Limitless Energy on Amazon. It's only $5.99. I wanted to price it very cheaply. So it's available to everyone. So go check that out on Amazon. It's called Limitless Energy, How to Detox Toxic Metals to End Exhaustion and Chronic Fatigue. 
Our guest today is Ari Whiten. He is the author of the number one Amazon bestselling book, Forever Fat Loss, and the creator of the Energy Blueprint System. He's a fitness and nutrition expert with a Bachelor's of Science from San Diego State University in Kinesiology. He holds two advanced certifications from the National Academy of Sports Medicine and recent, uh, recently completed coursework for his PhD in clinical psychology and education, with, which rounds out all aspects of nutrition, fitness, and psychology of his approach to optimal health. He's been working with people to improve their health and body composition for over a decade, and he's a tireless researcher who has obsessively devoted the last two decades of his life to the pursuit of being on the cutting edge of the science on health, fitness, and nutrition. For the last three years, he's been working with the most brilliant scientists and physicians on the planet to develop the most comprehensive program in the world on the science of overcoming fatigue and increasing energy, the energy blueprint. You can learn more about uh, Ari at theenergyblueprint.com. Ari, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you and how you got into health? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you uh, kind of the short story. Um, so I started in health when I was very young, um, probably around 13 years old. I started, you know, as, as many young teenagers do, I kind of got into fitness and building muscles and wanting to get some biceps and some abs to get some girls. And that's, you know, kind of started innocent, innocently enough for me. Um, and I got very, very deep into that world and um and i was you know i, I kind of was had a, had a little bit of a gift for it so i started reading you know college level nutrition textbooks by the time i was like 14 15 um and just kind of became obsessed with it and that was that was kind of my world for many years went to college um got a degree in kinesiology went on to be a personal trainer working with people in terms of nutrition as well and um Decided I wanted to go to medical school, actually went to medical school for two years, uh, decided I hated it. I actually hated it from the first week. I literally had to be on the phone every week uh, with my brother and with my parents going, I hate it here. I, I want to I get out of here. And they're like, oh, it's only, you know, three and a half more years. It's only three more years. It's only <laughs> two more years. It's only two and a half more years, you know. So um, that was a weekly conversation for me. And eventually when my hair started falling out when I was, you know, 23 years old uh, and and just like becoming emaciated from sleep deprivation and stress and just hating my life, um, I decided to leave. And, you know, it was largely a result of the fact that I had this background in nutrition and I understood how powerful nutrition and lifestyle strategies could be to affect your health. And I also knew, unlike everybody else that I was in school with, I knew the power of those things and how important they were to our health. And so I'm in the hospital, you know, in the internal medicine ward, just picture this, like imagine a young guy with a strong background in nutrition for 10 years in the, in the internal medicine ward of a hospital, seeing people with diabetes and heart disease, which are diseases of lifestyle, being treated with one drug after another while being fed the standard crappy hospital diet and receiving zero education on any of the lifestyle factors that actually cause that condition. So 
for me, it was intolerable. And I had to keep my mouth shut because if I deviate from, you know, the protocol that they're teaching me, I can be expelled from school. Um, and, you know, also classmates, if I, if I kind of shoot off my mouth, you know, classmates will think, oh, you know, who's this guy who thinks he's so smart, who, you know, knows more than the doctors here, right? So it, it was a situation that just became intolerable to me. And I knew it wasn't the right way to help people. So uh, I eventually decided to leave, then went to a PhD program for clinical psychology, um, did the whole three years of that program, passed with flying colors, then realized I, just, I didn't want to be a clinical psychologist. And, uh, and so I decided not to go and pursue, you know, all of that internship and getting licensed. And, you know, the big factor for me was like, I had been reading all this research around nutrition and the power to help people with psychological conditions. Um, which is, you know, again, kind of like medical school in, in clinical psychology school, you receive zero education on nutrition and lifestyle factors when there's lots of science showing that they're linked with depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, on and on. And um, so I realized that if I go through all of these years of internship and then take my licensing exam, get my license to practice clinical psychology in the state of California, and then I try to integrate nutrition into my practice, they can actually take my license away. Wow. So, so in other words, I actually have more freedom to practice the way that I wanna practice by not having a license, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. So um, that's when I basically decided to start my own business and help people the way that I wanted to help people, the way that I felt was right. So started writing books, started creating online programs, started doing coaching with people, and that kind of uh, brings me to where we are now. Yeah, I totally identify with what you were saying about, you know, finding that those, doing the psychology was, was wearing on you and or the thought of, uh, you know, not being able to use nutrition in your practice and new nutrition in the medical world. And it's really an abomination. I feel like that lifestyle and nutrition are not tended to in these disciplines and only drugs are given. You can have your license taken away. If uh, you mention those things, it's just ridiculous. It, it's it, just... It, it is for sure. And you know, I was going to, it wasn't just medical school. I was then going to have to go through four or five years of residency where again, I have to keep my mouth shut to ev all these patients that I'm going to see. I can't tell them because now I'm in a situation where if I deviate from the hospital protocol of what their the standard practice is, I can be kicked out of the residency. So it, it, it was just in a situation that was intolerable. And it was just like painful to me. It kept me up at night. It was stressing me out. And I was losing my hair in my early 20s. Yeah. So, and that's why I know. love the work that you do. I think it's so important to and, and for the listeners to learn about alternative uh you know not, not even alternative but just learning about diet learning about lifestyle learning about supplements and this kind of education you're not going to get from your medical doctor these alternatives that you have to factor in to your health regime if you plan to reverse health issues or if you plan to get your energy back and yeah 100 yeah. percent. and you know i the word, I'm glad you corrected yourself on the word alternative because we sometimes hear this meme among conventional medicine around alternative. And, you know, there's a reason they call it alternative. It's because 
if it were proven and there was science behind it, then it would just be science or it would be medicine and it wouldn't be alternative medicine. And when we're talking about like the links, the scientific links between lifestyle factors and dietary factors and, you know, heart disease and diabetes and depression and dozens of other conditions, we're not talking about something that's alternative and it's like, you know, there is, there's a lack of science on this subject. There's a mountain of science on this, thousands of studies. And you can go to medical school and get your MD and literally receive zero education on any of those tens of thousands of studies on the entire field of nutrition and lifestyle factors. You can get your MD and know nothing about those things. Yeah, and that's insane. Yeah. And that's not the point of medical school. The point of medical yeah. school is to learn how to give drugs to people and do surgery on people. And we need those things for sure, but they're not the first line of treatment. I don't think they should be the first line. They should be the last resort. And people have to realize when they go to their medical doctor, they have to know who they're speaking to. If they go to their doctor, they're going to get medications or surgery. And if you want that, great. But if you're looking to do something for your health that's actually going to address the underlying root cause of the condition and permanently reverse it, you have to think about diet and nutrition, supplements, lifestyle, etc. 100%. Yeah. And if I get shot or stabbed or have a life-threatening infection... <laughs> I am so glad for conventional medicine. If I lose a leg and need a prosthetic, believe me, I'm the first to sing the praises of like the wonders and miracles of modern medicine. Um, but at the same time as doing these incredible things for the vast majority of disease in the Western world, they're diseases of lifestyle. And modern medicine is generally pretty powerless to, I mean, they're trying, they're trying to create cures, you know, drug cures for all these different conditions. But if you read the newspapers, you know, you can see headlines going back to the 1920s and 30s saying we're on the verge of creating a, you know, a cure for cancer and a cure for this and a cure for that. And, you know, where are the cures? Yeah, not going to um, not going to happen. <laughs> right. So these, you know, lifestyle diseases are not going to be cured with drugs. They're going to be cured with lifestyle. Yes. And so adrenal fatigue is one of those conditions that's not recognized by conventional medicine typically. And you've written a book on adrenal fatigue called The Truth About Adrenal Fatigue. Why don't you tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about that and give us the lowdown on adrenal fatigue. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky subject. Um, so there's, there's kind of two schools of thought, as you mentioned, the conventional school of thought, which basically says, you know, there's no science on the subject. There's no such thing as adrenal fatigue. And then we have the world of, you know, functional medicine docs and, and nutritionists and so on, who all are convinced adrenal fatigue is a very real thing. So now I'm actually kind of more in the middle ground here. Um, I'm not really aligned with either of the two perspectives. And I'll tell you why. Um, I actually was of the opinion that adrenal fatigue was very real and was a legitimate condition for a very long time. And, um, and I assumed since there's so many people talking about it and there's, you know, thousands of articles online that it all must be very real. Um, well, I decided actually to write a book, the one that you mentioned, um, when I originally set out to write it, I, I didn't intend it to be what it became. I, I originally wanted it to just be a compilation of like, here's all the science on adrenal fatigue 
and like what does the science say what are the best treatments according to the science for you know fixing your adrenal health and so on and uh, I discovered something pretty remarkable and kind of crazy so if you think of a condition so think of like any condition whether Alzheimer's or cardiovascular disease or, or anything you can think of and you go to PubMed and you do a search for that condition you will find literally thousands of studies that come up and if you go to PubMed and you put in adrenal fatigue you'll find literally almost nothing there's you know so this condition you know was created in uh, 1998 by James Wilson there's almost nothing there on adrenal fatigue and it's almost even worse than just saying there's nothing there because there's actually negative scientific data there's a systematic literature review titled adrenal fatigue does not exist and then it's taking you through all of the relevant literature you know that's even remotely related to the concept of adrenal fatigue and it's basically concluding there's no science to back up adrenal fatigue and so you have bodies of, you know, like you mentioned, uh, endocrinologists, MDs, who are coming out and saying um, there's no such thing as adrenal fatigue. There's no evidence to support it. Now, at the same time, there's a deeper problem here because I have a big problem. So I'm kind of in agreement with the conventional docs around the fact that there really isn't any evidence here. I mean, that's just, it's a fact. There just, there's no science on the subject of adrenal fatigue. You can verify that with a quick search of PubMed. Um, and, and they're just, just nothing to speak of. Um, so I'm kind of in agreement with them on that. At the same time, they also kind of brush off the whole concept of all these people, millions of people who are suffering from fatigue and these symptoms that have been, associated with adrenal fatigue and they kind of say oh you know it's all bs and you there's i looked at your blood test there's nothing wrong with you you know here's an antidepressant because you're a hypochondriac or here's a sleeping pill or something like that um and so i think that is extremely negligent and i do not agree with that at all so on, on the at the same time i also like i'm kind of on board with the whole functional medicine space who are actually like seeing that this is a real thing. Like people are having these symptoms, it's real, and they're trying to do something about it, which is a hell of a lot better than, you know, the conventional docs who are generally not doing anything about it. Um, so when I looked at the actual, so I'll put it this way. When I, what I decided to do, realizing that is, I decided to look at every study that I could find on anything related to chronic stress or burnout or HPA axis dysfunction uh, and cortisol levels. So the link between fatigue, chronic stress, stress, exhaustion, burnout, there's different names in the scientific literature um, and how they're linked to, um, to the symptoms of fatigue and, and how they're linked to cortisol abnormalities. And so, I, I literally, I, I spent months actually going through systematically, and I, I'm not exaggerating, literally every single study in existence that has ever been done on this subject, and picking them apart and reading not just the abstract, but reading the full text of every study. And I did what, I've never seen anyone else who's done this, so I think it's the only time that anyone's done it. And I compiled all of this research in one place. and. Here's, you know, to summarize months of research in a few sentences, here's basically what the research says. 
So of all these hundred and whatever, 30 studies or however many it was, about 25% linked um, the symptoms of fatigue, exhaustion, or burnout, or extreme stress with high cortisol levels. Another 25% of the studies linked them, linked those symptoms with low cortisol levels. Another 50 or so percent, it was actually like more like 53% of the studies, so the majority of the studies found no abnormality between normal, healthy people and people complaining of severe stress, exhaustion, burnout, fatigue. No difference whatsoever in their cortisol levels. So basically what I concluded uh, from that is that cortisol is not a very good marker, not a very good diagnostic indicator of fatigue and not a very good explanation. The whole paradigm of adrenal fatigue, this idea that stress wears out our adrenals and then that you know first creates a stage of high cortisol then low cortisol then our adrenals get exhausted and then we have the symptom of fatigue the research really doesn't make a case for that it, there's there's a huge disconnect between that theory and what the science actually says so you, you with me on all that so far absolutely okay cool so um then i basically so then there's kind of a, a between where i'm going to take you and um where we just talked about this whole, all the adrenal fatigue related science, um, there's a little bit of a connector piece. And this connector for me was, I, I saw an interesting chart um, on this site called Adrenal Advice. And this is in no way a, an endorsement of everything that is on that site, but there's one particular article that the guy did that was very interesting. And uh, he basically talked about the overlap between adrenal fatigue and chronic fatigue syndrome. And this is something that I like really never heard anyone really talking about. I mean, for the most part, these are generally viewed as very distinct things. And usually if you talk, you're in the conventional medical world, they're talking more in terms of chronic fatigue syndrome. If you're in more of the alternative functional medicine world, they're talking in terms of adrenal fatigue. But rarely does someone talk about both and like clearly explain, here are the symptoms that means you have adrenal fatigue, here are the symptoms that mean you have chronic fatigue syndrome, here's how we differentiate them on a differential diagnosis, and so on. Um, so this article did uh, a couple things. One is he took a survey from, uh, I think it was from WebMD, on people with chronic fatigue syndrome, just asking them, um, essentially, it was a list of symptoms and just asking these people with chronic fatigue syndrome, do you have this symptom? Do you have this symptom? Do you have this symptom? So they compiled a chart, if you can picture this, of the percentages of those people who said, yes, I have that symptom or that symptom or that symptom. So, you know, 70% for this symptom and 50% and 80% and so on. And then he decided to ask the same questions to people who suspected they had adrenal fatigue because usually it's a self-diagnosed thing. Oftentimes, uh, people are diagnosing themselves online. Sometimes they're seeing functional medicine docs and getting cortisol labs and so on. But um, he asked the same survey, and if you look at the, the chart, the complaints of the symptoms are almost identical. So you have pretty much, these people are complaining of the same symptoms in roughly the same proportions. Um, 
And then he did a Google Trends search, which if you know what Google Trends is, it's basically, it basically gives you a, a graph of how many people are searching for that keyword. So like just a line saying, you know, trend is going up or down or it's a flat line or whatever. And um, if you look at this chart for chronic fatigue syndrome and adrenal fatigue over the last 17 years or so, you know, basically since adrenal fatigue was created, um, what you see is that adrenal fatigue starts really low and goes up. Lots of people are searching for it now and few back then. And the opposite happened for chronic fatigue syndrome. So lots of people were searching for it back in the day. Now hardly anyone's searching for it. So is this because less people are you know, fatigued now? Well, it's, it's not. It's you know, basically what I'm suggesting is that there's a huge amount of overlap between these two conditions. And um, a lot of, and basically the words that people are describing the symptoms of fatigue and various things that go along with it um, are just dependent on the culture that they live in and whether the term adrenal fatigue is popular or whether the term chronic fatigue syndrome is more popular. You, you follow me on that, all that? Absolutely. And I, I, that really resonates with me because in my client population, a lot of people feel like they have adrenal fatigue, uh, but they also have lots of chronic fatigue symptoms uh, at yeah. the same time. And I have a whole battery of checklists of all the symptoms people have that they check off. And so uh, that really makes a lot of sense. This is a very, very interesting conversation. Yeah. So, so that's the connector piece. Now, so here's the, here's the kind of crux of it. So um, in contrast to adrenal fatigue, where I mentioned there's almost no science to speak of, there's a whole bunch of science on chronic fatigue syndrome. And, you know, they don't necessarily know, think they have all the answers. You know, if you look at most conventional MDs, they don't say, oh, we know exactly the answers. But there's a lot of studies and there's a lot of factors that have been identified. And in particular, in the last five years, there's been some really remarkable breakthrough research, like cutting edge research that has identified that mitochondrial dysfunction is really the crux of chronic fatigue syndrome. And so what I'm arguing here is, is basically what I'm suggesting to you all is that there's a spectrum, like we need to get rid of these terms, adrenal fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome, and start talking in terms of a spectrum of super high energy, debilitatingly low energy. Okay. And you know, if you're somewhere over here, forget about whatever you're calling it. If you're more towards the fatigue end of the spectrum, it is extremely likely you have mitochondrial dysfunction. And what I'm suggesting is that we shift out of an adrenal and cortisol centric model of fatigue and towards a mitochondrial centric model of fatigue, which actually aligns really well with your work because you're talking about heavy metals and how they're affecting the mitochondria, which is a huge factor in fatigue. You know, so um, that's, that's the basic idea. Now, um, there's two researchers in particular that have done some of this breakthrough research. One is Sarah Myhill in, um, in the UK, and she's a doctor who treats chronic fatigue syndrome and wrote a book on the subject, which is a great book. It's called Diagnosing uh, and Treating Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and Myalgic Encephalitis. And then subtitle is It's Mitochondria, Not Hypochondria. Um, which is pretty cool. And then uh, she's also done some some research actually in the lab to uh, develop what is basically the first objective diagnostic test 
for chronic fatigue syndrome, which is called an ATP profile test, which actually measures the health of your mitochondria. Interesting. So, yeah, whereas before there was no marker, there was no blood test, no value that you could go to your doctor and get some tests done that says, yes, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. It was based on a rule out basis. Like they do a blood test. If you don't have a thyroid condition, you don't have anemia, you know, you don't have this or that or heart disease or diabetes, then they say, oh, well, we can't detect anything else. So must be chronic fatigue syndrome. And it's, it's basically like a catch all diagnosis. It doesn't really mean anything because they don't really have any treatments for it. So um, it's just where they throw them when they've ruled out all the other things. And because they've ruled out all the other things, they generally think it's hypochondria. <laughs> so these people, they, they, these people are treated really badly in a lot of cases. Um, and even there's problems with their ability to work as well because you know, their, their employers are skeptical that they really have any real health problems since the doctor can't find anything. And it's and such yet, a huge problem and there's no medical treatment for it. It's a massive, yep. it's the number one health complaint I have from my clients. And I, that's what I started doing too, is investigating why are people so tired? And we, yep. you and I, we've just come, up, come at it from different angles is all. Yeah. And, but it, it's a multifactorial cause. And so let's, let's talk about that. Like talk about how the mitochondria is involved in so central to fatigue. Yeah, so, well, that's a good question. So it leads me into the, this other researcher. And um, this other researcher, his name's Robert Navio, and he's at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, he's a professor of medicine. He's an MD. And if you look up this guy's name on PubMed, he's got like an insane list of studies that he's done. Um, super well-respected researcher, and he runs a lab at, the, at UCSD for mitochondrial medicine. Um, he has done uh, what I consider to be the most important research in existence on the subject of fatigue. And, um, and it, it's cool because it, it meshes well with the stuff you're, you're already doing. Um, he, first of all, he did a study around chronic fatigue syndrome. And they did, uh, he developed a blood test that is basically the most comprehensive blood test like ever known um, by far. It detects over 600 blood metabolites. And um, the idea behind it is essentially to create a metabolic fingerprint for every um, for every condition. So it's it's so comprehensive. You can see almost every thing going on in your blood that you know every specific d disease would have like a kind of metabolic fingerprint. So eventually, if you can picture this into the future when this is more widely spread in use, um, they run your blood through this machine, they get a very, you know, detailed pattern of all the different abnormalities. And then it would be analyzed by artificial intelligence that tells you, oh, that's the fingerprint for so and so problem. Right? And so it will be much way more advanced, you know, hundreds of times more advanced than the standard blood test that we have now just analyzed by a doctor reading off these lab values. Um, now he did this test in people with chronic fatigue syndrome. And they found that like 80% of the blood markers were abnormal, which is crazy comparing it to like standard blood tests, which might not find any abnormalities in these people. Now, in particular, they found that the vast majority of them were low, which they concluded was suggestive of a 
low metabolic state. And specifically, they described it as a hibernation-like state. So now picture that. And now this other piece of research they've done, which I consider the, probably the most important study maybe ever conducted in health, and that's a big claim, but um, it's called the cell danger response. And basically what he, what he and his colleagues discovered in this research is that our mitochondria are not just energy generators. Okay, and that's, that's what most people describe them as. That's what I describe them as forever. It's just mitochondria produce energy. That's what they do. Um, what he discovered is that there's actually a second role that's almost completely not talked about by anyone. Um, and that role of mitochondria is cell defense. Their job is to defend against threats. Now, what are those threats? Well, they might be heavy metals, toxins, like you talk about, and you, your books talk a lot about how heavy metals are coming in and, you know, inhibiting mitochondrial dysfunction. Okay. So that's, you know, one factor. There's other factors, psychological trauma, psychological stress can affect it. Um, viruses and infectious uh, agents can, can affect that function. So these are all threats that basically turn on the cell defense function of the mitochondria. So now why, why would they be involved in that? Well, if you think of it this way, um, let's say a toxin comes into the cell, uh, heavy metals, or let's say uh, a virus comes into the cell. Well, one of the things that a virus will do is actually use the cellular energy that's being produced by the mitochondria, by your mitochondria, they'll actually use that energy for themselves to fuel their own replication. So one of the jobs of mitochondria is actually to detect when that's happening, when there's like energy steal going on, and to shut down, to turn themselves off, to prevent that virus from replicating, to seal it off in the cell, and then it, it triggers this cascade of reactions that essentially seals off the cell and kind of self-destructs. Now, and the job of that is to pre prevent that virus or prevent that toxin from then leaking out and affecting lots of other cells. So whenever there's a threat in the cell, the mitochondria detect it, they start to shut down, and they seal it off, and that cell goes offline. Does that, that all make sense? Yeah, that is so, so interesting. And I mean, we know that, you know, a lot of different viral infections, other types of infections are a huge, huge energy, energy drain on us. And that makes so much sense as to, to why we have all these cells shutting down, not producing as much energy. Yeah. And if all of this sounds kind of like abstract, I mean, just think of the last time you got a cold or a flu. What happened? You felt fatigued, right? So why do you feel fatigued? I mean, it's this is like an everyday observation, but why? Does any, has anybody ever explained why you feel fatigued and you lack energy all of a sudden when your body is fighting off an infection? Well, it's because your mitochondria are literally going into defense mode. They're shutting down. Okay, so here's the big crux of it all. These two functions of mitochondria, energy production and cell defense, are mutually exclusive. So the mitochondria can only do one or the other. And to the extent that your body is defending against threats, 
your mitochondria will turn on cell defense mode and turn off energy production mode. So your, in this sense, your energy levels are basically a reflection of the threat level that your body is under. How many toxins are being poured into your body? What kind of stress are you under? Are you fighting off chronic infections? Um, and there's lots and lots of other factors that will affect that. But um, that's, that's the basic idea. And we now know that there are very clear links, and this has been validated by many studies now, that there are very clear links between mitochondrial function and fatigue. So this is why I've shifted out of an adrenal and cortisol-centric model of fatigue towards a mitochondrial-centric model of fatigue. Yeah, and I, I totally understand that because I've done various kinds of cortisol tests, and I question them. Um, I did your standard saliva cortisol test, and I've been working on my health really hard for about four years. I've been getting nine hours of sleep every night and eating a perfect diet and really no high-intensity exercise and really focusing on healing my body. And it said I had stage three adrenal fatigue. I'm like, yeah. I know that's not correct. And, and you felt good. I felt good. I felt great. Yeah. And then I did a, a urine a uh, Dutch cortisol test, but there's been a little bit of question as to the accuracy of those as well. Um, and maybe they have really good marketing going on for those. And, um, you know, and uh, I, I've talked to a number of doctors that aren't, you know, terribly impressed uh, with them. But, you know, it's, we have to, it's better, it's an upgrade from the this the saliva cortisol test and yeah. with those um it said i didn't it my metabolized cortisol was normal um, right which i identified more with um but yeah I, that's a very very uh what you're saying is uh, really makes a lot of sense to me absolutely and so so i know you you often talk about two different ways uh that we can build, build health so what are those two ways and why are they different yeah so you know, when if, if, if I ask you the question or if I ask the listeners the question, what makes us healthy? You know, we'd probably come up with a list of things, you know, you know, just for the listeners, don't make this a passive thing where you're just listening to me. I actually think about it. Like what makes human beings healthy? What are the factors? If you think about it, you'll probably come up with a list of things like, you know, um, eat a healthy diet, drink lots of water, do exercise, uh, keep stress levels low, um, you know, keep, make sure to sleep well and so on. And all of that is great. That's important stuff. But, uh, there's actually a whole other category of things that make us health, make us healthy. That, uh, is, is largely not talked about. And in my opinion, it is, just as important as all of those things that we talked about. And there's a giant mountain of science to back it up that this is a huge factor in um, our health, our ability to prevent disease and ward off disease, and our longevity in general, and our energy levels. And that is something called hormesis, which is metabolic stress. It is a transient metabolic stressor that actually stimulates adaptations in your body to grow stronger. Okay, now if that sounds like a kind of a weird, wacky idea, just consider the fact that you actually understand this um, on a practical level already with exercise. 
exercise actually is a hormetic stressor. And it works on this principle, which is essentially, you know, Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And there's literally, this happens in our body. This is how exercise works. Exercise is not intrinsically healthful. It's not like a case where the more exercise you do, you know, if you run three marathons every day, seven days a week, um, you know, you just get healthier and healthier. It doesn't work like that. It, it works as a temporary stressor. And by creating that temporary stress on the system, your body responds to that by making certain adaptations. So in the case of exercise, depending on the, the type of exercise, it makes different adaptations, but um, it might uh, increase muscle size and muscle strength, uh, increase the heart's ability to pump, the lung's ability to extract oxygen efficiently, um, oxygen delivery at the blood cell interface to deliver oxygen and, uh, to the mitochondria more effectively. Um, to increase capillarization, you'll literally build more capillaries around the muscle to, to deliver more uh, energy more efficiently and or deliver more nutrients and oxygen, I, I should say. And um, most importantly, to build and strengthen your mitochondria. So this is a huge, huge factor in health. And there's a there's a, a theory in the realm of aging science that's probably the most um, prescribed to theory or the most subscribed to theory I should say among aging scientists. You know, there's dozens of competing theories of aging, but this is one where there's like a huge mountain of evidence, and pretty much everyone agrees this is a huge factor. Um, and it's called the mitochondrial theory of aging, and the the basics of it, you know kind of oversimplifying a little bit, but the basic idea of it is that you age and break down and get diseased in proportion to your mitochondrial health. And the more damage your mitochondria incur, the more that you will age and be prone to disease. And there's actually a ton of evidence to show that this is the case, both animal evidence and human evidence. And um, now, if you consider that, Hormetic stress now plays an integral role because hormetic stress is what is responsible for inoculating the mitochondria against stress. It's responsible for strengthening them and helping them to be resilient in the face of stress and protect themselves from damage. Literally, there's something called the ARE, which stands for antioxidant response element. And we have an internal antioxidant defense system built into our cells. So that defense system, when you do a hormetic stressor, um, you are actually stimulating the production of free radicals, which everybody thinks are really damaging and bad and harmful, and you have to avoid free radicals and take your antioxidants. Well, there's a lot more complexity to the story, which we can get into, but um, things like exercise exercise actually creates free radicals, it doesn't create antioxidants, it creates oxidants, things that supposedly damage your cells. Now, um, in response, here's the key, in response to that creation, that burst of oxidants or free radicals that's created by exercising, your body, your cells, your mitochondria switch on the ARE, the antioxidant response element, which is that internal antioxidant defense system. And by stimulating it, it actually grows stronger. Right. So if you need an analogy, think of 
doing bicep curls with a dumbbell. Okay. If you start doing bicep curls and creating and using more heavier weight and pushing yourself really hard, your body adapts by growing a bigger bicep. Pretty simple. So the same thing happens on an internal level with the internal antioxidant defense system. You are strengthening that antioxidant defense system and then it becomes more resilient and, and doesn't just help you, and this is the key, doesn't just help you protect against the effects of exercise. It actually protects against all types of stressors and all types of oxidative damage. So you're building the system to be more resilient. But why is removing the stressors not enough? Um, you know, it seems like uh, a big problem we have is we not only live in a very stressful world, but we lost our like physiological resilience in the face of stress due to lack of the, the hermetic stress. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So. Um, the reason that just focusing on removing stressors is not enough is because we have accumulated damage to our mitochondria over decades. And we've actually, so if you put a cast on a muscle and you like, let's say you break a bone, you get a cast on, um, what happens six weeks or eight weeks later when you get the cast off? Well, all those muscles are atrophied, right? So you, those muscles, because they haven't been stimulated, they've shrunk and They've shriveled and they've become weak. Well, that is happening internally with our mitochondria when we lack hormetic stress in our life. Our mitochondria shrink, they shrivel, they become weak, they become fragile, they become susceptible to damage, and they actually die off. So we actually have fewer mitochondria as time goes on. As, as we've accumulated damage over decades, um, we actually end up with way fewer mitochondria than we had when we were younger. And the ones that are there are little and weak and fragile and dysfunctional. So just if you now take those weak and fragile mitochondria and you just remove sources of stress, well, that's great. That's a huge step in the right direction and it'll massively improve the health of a lot of people. But if you wanna then go back to the way that you felt when you were in your 20s, in that level of high energy and health and robustness and vitality, well, you actually have to not only remove the stressors that are chronically damaging and inhibiting your mitochondria, you have to then rebuild those things through hormetic stress. And I should, I should also mention here that hormetic stress isn't just exercise. There's tons of different kinds of hormetic stress. So things like cold exposure, heat exposure, um, hypoxia, so different kinds of like pranayama and breath hold training. Um, phytonutrients are another kind of hormetic stressor. So you've heard of adaptogens. Well, those work by affecting the, the ARE in the mitochondria. Um, so there's, there's lots of layers, there's lots of types of hormetic stress that can be used. And there's lots of research on those different types of hormetic stress showing how important they are to, to improving our mitochondrial health. I was going to say, add, add to that and say that infrared saunas are another type of hermetic stress uh, that really help uh, to improve mitochondrial functioning, uh, partly by heat shock therapy and raising the body temperature a little bit, and the body has to adapt to that, and uh, it's another form of hermetic stress that can help mitochondria. Yeah, absolutely right. And even the, the other aspect of like the type of sauna you recommend is red light and near-infrared light which is, is actually a type of hormetic stress at the mitochondrial level as well. It's another type of hormetic 
hypoxemic stress. You're actually getting two types when you're in that type of sauna. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I've heard you say before that the free radical theory of aging is flawed and that antioxidants can be more harmful than healthful. So this is very interesting. I love all the saying that you're all the stuff you're saying that's kind of anti-establishment so that sounds kind of crazy so what's the deal with that yeah well actually this believe it or not this is actually not that anti-establishment it's actually more establishment than anti-establishment um, and what i mean by that is if you look at the medical literature and the general views of most conventional doctors they actually believe exactly what I'm going to tell you, because this is what the vast majority of evidence supports, um, which is exactly that, that antioxidants are generally not as beneficial as um, most people in the more naturalistic um, health communities generally think. And, and by the way, to be clear, I consider myself part of that naturalistic community. This is just one point of where, where I think they're going a little bit of astray. And um, now to give you some background here, so there's basically something that was created back in the 1950s by um, a guy named Harmon. And he created something called the free radical theory of aging. And it caught on and it kind of caught like wildfire and not only spread within the scientific community, but also spread among the lay public. Like, and to the point where this idea that free radicals, I mean, this is the basic idea, that free radicals damage our cells and therefore we need antioxidants to combat the free radicals um, and, can, and sort of neutralize them to prevent damage to our cells. That, that's the free radical theory of aging. That's ma spread massively, not only in the scientific community, um, in the you know, more naturalistic health community, but among the general public at large, almost everybody in the world knows about that concept and subscribes to it and thinks it's true and you know everybody believes it and tons of science to support it. In fact, there is a huge amount of data contradicting this theory and almost no aging scientist in the world now subscribes to it. I mean, if you Google, for example, is the free radical theory of aging dead? There's tons of articles you know, and studies on that topic. Um, now, basically, you know, I kind of alluded to something that, uh, relevant to this before when I was talking about exercise. So there are certain, basically the way this works, if, if you have a theory um, which says free radicals or oxidants cause damage to cells and then, you know, um, we can neutralize them with antioxidants and prevent damage. So if that's the theory, there's kind of two, um, there's two theories that come out of that, two ways that we can kind of test that theory. So one is we can look at things that stimulate the production of free radicals or oxidants and see if they accelerate aging, cause disease, and essentially accelerate our demise. Um, now, as I've already told you, exercise is one example of that. It creates free radicals. So what we would expect to see if the free radical theory of aging were true is that since exercise creates free radicals and the more you do exercise, the faster you should age and the more disease you should become and, and so on. Um, and we already know that that doesn't happen. In fact, it's the opposite that happens. 
generally speaking, the more you exercise you do, assuming you're not doing extreme crazy amounts, but reasonable, more human amounts, um, the more exercise you do actually delays aging and prevents disease and accelerates uh, and, and um, lengthens lifespan. So that's one theory that comes out of it. Now, the other one is antioxidants. Since oxidants are bad, antioxidants are good. They neutralize the free radicals and, um, and then prevent harm. So therefore should extend our lifespan and um, prevent disease and so on. Well, that theory has actually been tested extensively. And although probably a lot of your listeners might be might find this hard to believe, um, the data is extremely consistent that antioxidant supplementation with like vitamin C pills, vitamin E pills, vitamin A pills does not extend lifespan and does not prevent disease. Now, I want to be clear that, you know, in the context of a deficiency in a, in a particular thing, if you have scurvy, you know, vitamin C is going to be really important. Or if you have vitamin E deficiency or vitamin A deficiency, yes, those nutrients are extremely important. Um, but in pretty much all of the scientific trials where they've actually put it to the test and says, does, does vitamin C or vitamin E or whatever prevent this type of cancer? Does it prevent heart disease? Does it prevent diabetes? Whatever the test is, and they've tested it with lots of different diseases, and they've tested it with general lifespan and all-cause mortality as well. And across the board, very consistently, here's what they find. It does not prevent diseases, and it does not extend lifespan. And that's at best. At worst, it actually we've there are several studies which actually show increased rates of certain kinds of cancer um, or, or heart disease and and earlier death. So at best, we're looking at no benefits. And and again, I just want to add, like, I'm sure lots of people listening are skeptical, like, by all means, go look at the research yourself, go look up, do antioxidants. You go on PubMed, do antioxidants extend lifespan? Do antioxidants prevent cardiovascular disease? Do they prevent cancer? Whatever. Look up whatever you want. See if you can find reviews of the literature that say otherwise. Because across the board, and I've looked at the literature across the board, they don't. So what's going on? How do we explain this? Why does exercise extend lifespan and prevent disease instead of worsen it? Um, and why do antioxidants not work? Well, it's because of that system that I told you before, that internal antioxidant system. We, we come built, our cells come built with an internal antioxidant defense system. So yes, too much oxidative damage at the cellular level is problematic, but it's not caused by a deficiency in dietary antioxidants. It's, be, it's caused by a deficiency in cellular antioxidants. So the task is... How can we build up our internal antioxidant defense system to make it robust and resilient so that it prevents damage? And, you know, in certain cases, like, for example, your work around detoxing heavy metals. Well, if you have heavy metals in the system, that's going to constantly drain your internal antioxidant defense system. So removing that, you know, that source of toxins is super important to help rebuild that internal system. It's not you don't you don't combat toxins in the system by saying, hey, pour more, you know, vitamin C on top of it, you got to get rid of the, the, the real problem there, and then strengthen and rebuild the system. I agree. <laughs> <laughs>
so yeah so that's that's antioxidants pretty crazy things for you know i'm sure for people to think about who are used to thinking in the the typical free radical theory of aging antioxidants are good free radicals are bad sort of model but this is actually what the science says and this is if you look at aging researchers and what the overall body of scientific evidence actually says, that's what it says. Yeah, very, very interesting. I never really focus on antioxidants and supplementation and whatnot. Yeah. I typically focus on minerals and getting giving people stuff to get rid of metals and works great. Yeah, for sure. And so you talk about the two phases of being healthy in your book. And so what are they and why should people pay attention to them? Yeah, so you know, I kind of alluded to a list a, a little bit um, when I talked about how we we our muscle atrophies if you put it in the cast, you know, and and then you know the task isn't just to remove the cast; you then have to rebuild the muscle to get back to where you were before. You, otherwise, you're just walking around with a shriveled up muscle. So most people who are suffering from fatigue and poor health are in a in in a in you know a state of poor cellular function now the first step is to remove the stressors and to remove the toxins and get rid of all of the things that are hindering cellular and mitochondrial function once you do that though your job isn't totally done because now you're still left with a body that has been beaten down and is full of weak, shriveled, dysfunctional mitochondria. So the second step that, that I believe is really important that a lot of people are missing is to realize that just removing those, those stressors just gets you back to normal. And normal is, is kind of sucks. It's not, not a very good situation. Yeah, um, I don't want normal. <laughs> exactly. So normal is, you know, you remove the cast and you're left with a shriveled muscle. Well, you know, you, you've, you're, it's not good enough. Basically, what you need to do then is rebuild and regenerate the system so that you strengthen everything and bring it back into the way that it was in a more youthful state. So in terms of mitochondria specifically, if you think of that, you know, like Robert Navio's research around the cell danger response and the fact that all of these toxins and stressors on the system are causing damage to our mitochondria. They're damaging the membranes of the mitochondria. They're, um, they're, they're literally even causing them to self-destruct in, or, in order to seal off and, and prevent the spread of some of these stressors on the system. Um, so we're losing mitochondria. And then on top of that, the lack of hormetic stress in our lives, the fact that we live very lives of comfort where we're protected from hormetic stressors in the modern world. We live uh, kind of an anti-hormetic lifestyle where um, we no longer have to do physical activity to live like we used to. We don't have to go outdoors and be exposed to the elements. We live in indoor environments that are climate controlled where we always keep them, you know, 67 degrees to 72 degrees and we make sure to always never you know, to never get too hot or too cold. We don't want to be uncomfortable. Well, and, and we, we eat diets that are deficient in phytonutrients. We always have an overabundance of food. Um, and so we don't have uh, any times of intermittent fasting, which is another type of hormetic stress. Um, 
So we're missing out on all of these layers of hormetic stress that our bodies are evolved for. And because of that, they're causing our mitochondria to atrophy and shrink and shrivel and become fragile. And, and to because that internal antioxidant system is not being stimulated, that system becomes weak. And then um, when it's not strengthened, it becomes very susceptible to damage from all those other toxins and heavy metals and um, infections and all these other things. So it's basically a, a, a perfect storm of all of these factors that either directly damage mitochondrial function or weaken them or cause atrophy or actually cause them to die. And so at the end of years or decades of accumulating all of that, you have a body with, let's say, half as many mitochondria as you did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And there's actually evidence to to support that. I mean, there's actually studies that show that 40-year-olds compared to 75-year-olds have about double the mitochondrial capacity. So, um, li so literally, this perfect storm is is causing you to over decades end up with way fewer mitochondria, and the ones that are there are weak, shriveled, little fragile mitochondria that are damaged and not very efficient and powerful at producing energy. So you can remove the stressors, that's great, but that doesn't take you back to the way you were 20 or 30 years ago. It just removes the stress, so you'll feel better. But to get back the way you were, you now have to add the layers of hormetic stress to rebuild the mitochondria. So you have to torture yourself to have energy, <laughs> basically. Get basically, hot yes. and cold and starve and sweat and exercise and all that stuff. So can you yes. grow new? <laughs> I love that summer. We should write a book together. Yeah, exactly. Tor torture yourself to help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's essentially what it boils down to. Um, so can you grow new mitochondria? Is that possible? It is actually is something called mitochondrial biogenesis and there are specific ways of doing it in, in my program, the energy blueprint, I have something called the mitochondrial biogenesis protocol, which is a specific layering of about eight strategies together um, that synergize to really help boost mitochondrial biogenesis and actually rebuild new ones. So um, there, and there are, so like exercise, for example, let's just take that one example. There's actually research on what are the specific types of exercise and ways of doing exercise that either lead to mitochondrial biogenesis or don't. So it's possible to exercise in a way and even push yourself and, you know, do the whole exercising thing and, you know, four or five days a week and feel like you're working hard, but not actually stimulate any new generation of mitochondria. So depending on how you do things. Now, um, to without going into all of the, the studies and the breakdown of all of them, to quickly summarize that, um, in general, it depends if you're trained or untrained. So if you're an untrained person, meaning a largely sedentary person who doesn't do any exercise now, um, essentially any type of exercise will stimulate some mitochondrial biogenesis. It doesn't matter whether it's cardio or interval training or weight training, they'll all work to generate new mitochondria. But once you start exercising regularly, um, you're what's called trained. Now it really makes a big difference when and how you do exercise and what type of exercise you do. So um, in particular, they found that either concurrent training, um, weight training and 
cardio or weight training and high intensity interval training are more effective. And then high intensity or uh, interval, high intensity interval training or what's called sprint interval training, which is kind of all out high intensity interval training, um, is is the most effective way to generate new mitochondria in trained people. And then there's even specific ways you can enhance it from there. So there's specific phytonutrients that can enhance the effect. If you do it in a, a what's called a glycogen depleted state, which means um, if your muscles are depleted of carbohydrate stores before you do that activity, then that can further enhance mitochondrial biogenesis. And then there's also a timing effect. So um, if you eat a bunch of foods, in particular, a bunch of carbs, before that exercise, you can do that exercise that would otherwise stimulate mitochondria, but now it won't. So, um, you know, how you do it, whether you're doing it in a fasted state and what type of exercise you're doing uh, and how you layer it with other factors, all of these things influence how many mitochondria your body actually will create. Yeah, I love exercising when I'm starving because <laughs> I know it's good for me. Um, so, so, torture. <laughs> <yeah>. so, <laughs> so anyone listening who's really, really tired and who is chronically fatigued and has been for a while, should they engage in high intensity interval training, uh, other types of intense aerobic exercise, even when they do that, they feel really, really more and more tired for a day or two afterward? Are, are they doing themselves good or is that a setback for them? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, when it comes to hormetic stress, it's, it's important that you know that it's possible to overdo it and it's possible to do types of exercise or types of hormetic stress that aren't necessarily the best fit for you. So what you brought up is a great point. Somebody who has chronic fatigue syndrome and is debilitated and suffering one of the classic symptoms of that is post-exertional fatigue, which means they get wiped out for a day or two or three after doing, you know, some activity. Um, in those people, you know, obviously they shouldn't go run out and do high intensity interval training. Um, and they need to make sure actually to avoid overdoing it and wiping themselves out for three days. So there are other types of hormetic stress um, that are way more gentle on the system than are way more appropriate for someone with that level of fatigue uh, and mitochondrial dysfunction. Things that won't tax the mitochondria nearly as much and stress them and potentially cause even more damage and things that provide a very gentle form of hormetic stress very, very minimal discomfort that um, stimulate the system to grow stronger. So as an example, sitting in a near infrared sauna for even, you know, let's say somebody with severe chronic fatigue syndrome might only be able to handle it for five minutes or three minutes, right? And that's a very gentle form of hormetic stress. And then a minor, very small, small dose of that might be where they need to start at first. Another great place to start in terms of hormetic stress is uh, intermittent hypoxia training. So like various kinds of breath hold training. Um, and even literally just, you know, you can start with a single breath hold. Um, and there are lots of variations of, of how to do that. And I teach that in, in the energy blueprint program, but that's a way better way to start than going out and trying to do high intensity interval training, you know, right from the start to try and build your mitochondria. Hormetic stress is very, very powerful medicine, but you know, like, any powerful medicine, um, if you do too much of it, it causes side effects. So yeah. the same is same is true with every powerful me medicine in existence. Um, 
And, and so it's very important that you do the right kinds of medicine and that you do it in the right dose to get the proper effect. I always encourage people to listen to your body over and above everything. Uh, you need to always listen to your body. Your body will tell you to please stop doing that or to keep doing that. Um, yeah, absolutely. And But in it, hormetic stress is a little tricky in that sense because there's a little bit of discomfort initially. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so you have to get a little bit comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes. And then, and then assuming that that you're, you know, we're talking about common sense and reasonable levels of, you know, don't push yourself to the extreme and think that tolerating insane amounts of torture is a way to get your health back. You know, you're trying to push yourself into just a bit of teensy little bit of discomfort to create that little bit of stimulation on your mitochondria to get them to adapt and grow stronger. And, and that's, that's the key. And then assuming you're doing that, then absolutely listen to your body and, and don't overdo it and push yourself and wipe yourself out. Yeah, and I think it's about knowing what a normal response is. Like it's not normal to go lift weights and then be exhausted for two days. You know, definitely absolutely. not normal. You should be exhausted for like, you know, a few hours or something or be, tired, be tired at the end of the day, something of that nature. Yeah. Maybe fall asleep a little earlier. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so you have a program called the Energy Blueprint, where you teach people how to improve their energy levels, how to improve and breed their mitochondria. Uh, so tell us about that. Yeah, so it's a 60-day program, and it's starting in June later this month. Um, and I'm doing a free training, so you can get more like actionable strategies from me on how to actually start doing this and I can actually walk you through the process step by step um, in a very systematic way uh, and that's starting on June 15th where I'm doing a 10-day free training energy blueprint free training and you can sign up for it uh, I believe you're gonna have a link for your audience to sign up for probably on this page so that uh, or yeah I guess on your website probably and so if, if you go sign up for that, I'll walk you through the process. It'll be a 10-day free training, and you'll get tons of really valuable content. And I have people, every time I launch the program, uh, who, who tell me that the 10-day free training itself is life-changing. So definitely go sign up for that. Yeah, and I've heard so many people that have been through your program say it absolutely over-delivers and they learn so much and uh, just so worth it. I, I've talked to several people who've been through it and just think it's fantastic. Cool. So I definitely Thanks. encourage the listeners, uh, you know, detoxification is certainly part of improving your energy levels, but that's only one Absolutely. facet of it. Only one facet. And uh, Ari Whiten has done an amazing job of looking at the science, looking at the research, and compiling all of that in his wonderful energy blueprint program. I highly encourage you to do that because I know a lot of you guys are so tired and are looking for solutions to that. And Ari has a lot of them for you. So I have a question I'd like to ask all of my guests. What yeah. do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Ooh, um, I think we got to go with fatigue on that one. Uh, it's becoming an epidemic. And I think uh, the latest stats are something like over 50% of the population now suffers from chronic low-level general fatigue. And um, I saw a stat recently that like over 40% of all doctor's visits now are due to people complaining of fatigue. So 
this is it's a huge epidemic and you know kind of like we talked about at the beginning of this call it's not really being addressed adequately um, you know by conventional medicine and and I believe the answer is going to be by focusing on mitochondria so that's that's the biggie for me but Ari, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, really um, amazing insight and information uh, that I know everyone listening has been uh, really happy that they spent their last uh, the last hour of their life listening to you. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Where can the listeners find you? TheEnergyBlueprint.com. Great. And everyone, if you want to uh, learn more about me, you can go to live2110.com. You can also check out my detox program at mineralpower.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.